This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. Just outside the house that I grew up in, the place where my parents still live, outside the kitchen window is this tree that is perfect for climbing. I think it was a, a magnolia tree, it had large white blossoms that came out, shiny leaves, and the bark was smooth. The great thing about this tree is that it split into two main trunks, and that V was just a couple of feet off the ground. And as, as a little boy, I looked at that tree and I counted the holds and saw how very quickly how high I could climb. You notice how kids do that, especially little boys. When they see a tree, they don't think about the fruit in the tree. They don't think about the shade. They think, how high can I get in that thing? It's just the, the, the way they're made. And uh, my, my parents were like, yeah, go climb the tree. No problem. Just test to make sure the branches are strong enough. The, the one rule for, for climbing the tree was when I was high enough and far out enough in, in the branch that kind of angled off that I, I could see the fence between our yard and the neighbor's yard. I had to stop there. And I could not figure out why that was the rule when I was a kid. What, what difference does that make? I, the fence keeps me out of their yard. Yeah, they don't want me in their grass. But if I'm in a tree, who cares if I'm above their yard? What difference does that make at all? The, the reason that I wasn't allowed to climb over the fence was if I were to fall out of the tree on top of the fence, I would break. That was why that rule was in existence. So it was perfectly fine for me to fall and hit the ground. It wasn't okay for me to fall and hit the fence. There's a big difference. And I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my mind around that as a kid. Now that I'm a grown man, I understand why that rule was in place. When my feet leave the ground, I'm thinking about how they're going to come back to the ground so that I don't hurt myself and end up recovering for multiple weeks after the fact. As, as a grown man, you will most likely not find me in a tree. It's just not something that grown men do. You don't expect to see an adult male perched in a tree, just, just like hanging out, climbing higher, goofing off. No, we don't do those kinds of things. I, the last time I was in a tree was about 10 years ago. I'll be honest. Oh, no, I forgot. It's been more recent than that. 10 years ago, I was disc golfing with some teenagers in our youth group. And we were at Riverbend and on the back nine, as you, as you turn the corner along that row of pines and the playgrounds in front of you, one of the teenagers threw their Frisbee into the pines and it stuck in the upper branches. I won't say who. And I did, as the adult in the group decided, well, I should probably help get that down. So I started climbing and pine trees are basically like ladders. You find the right spot. Their branches are straight and parallel to the ground. So I climb about halfway and here's my strategy for getting the Frisbee down. I'm going to start shaking the tree from inside the tree so that the Frisbee will fall. I'm not going to reach out on the thin branches. I'm smart enough not to do that. But I was shaking this tree from inside. Can you imagine how ridiculous I looked? A grown man standing in a pine tree, just shaking it, trying to get a Frisbee to fall. It's, it's, the ridiculous things we do sometimes. But notice how distinct and, and memorable that moment would have been if you had experienced it. Today, as we come back to our last sermon in the, the Conversationalist series, we're going we're gonna to see Jesus interacting with a man in a tree. His name is Zacchaeus. You've probably heard the story. Uh, and this, this is our last sermon in the Conversationalist series. And, and you'll recall 
that we are talking about the conversations that Jesus had with people around him, conversations that drew those people closer to him. And we're learning from that process of having spiritual conversations with people, of, of turning conversations toward the spiritual, of, of purposely initiating conversations to help draw people closer to Jesus, to help make those connections in their lives, to build a relationship between them and him. And so we're going to learn today, as Jesus spoke with Zacchaeus, as they interacted a little bit, uh, this, this man in a tree, uh, how we can connect with people and the significance of speaking to them about their need for Jesus and making those connections. We're going to look at Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. If you have a Bible, please open with me. The words will be on the screen. If you'd like to use the YouVersion app, you can search under events for Parkview Finley and find scripture and sermon notes there as well. We'll begin in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus because the people in the crowd were taller than he was. It would also seem that the crowd was unwilling to allow Zacchaeus to move forward to a place where he could see Jesus. Why would that be? What do we know about Zacchaeus? In these few brief sentences, what have we learned? Well, Zacchaeus is in Jerusalem, in Jericho. He is a tax collector, not just any tax collector. He is a chief of tax collectors. He is wealthy and he's short. Those are the facts we have from scripture. Based off those facts, we can, we can draw some logical conclusions, make some assumptions. We have to be careful to distinguish between scriptural fact and assumptions that we draw from our understanding. We can also study a little bit and, and gain a deeper understanding about personality and interaction relationships based off of what we know from history. And uh, if we would look up what, what, what it meant for Zacchaeus to be a chief tax collector, we would discover that the Roman Empire... That, that governed this entire region, allowed the people of Israel to remain somewhat autonomous in many things. They could hold their, their own court, the Sanhedrin. They could do many of their own things, but they were still subject to Rome. And part of being subject to Rome meant that they had to pay taxes to Rome. And Rome appointed or hired tax collectors from among their own people to collect funds and send those to Rome. The people who collected those taxes from their own countrymen were despised, hated by the other Israelites. They considered them traitors and refused to acknowledge that they were sons of Abraham, that they were Israelites. Just a part of that animosity they felt towards those tax collectors. Now, the the way that a tax collector would become wealthy, not just from the payment he would receive for his job, they were permitted to collect more money than they needed to send to Rome and pocket the excess. So if we understand that Zacchaeus is a tax collector and he is very wealthy, he's become wealthy in some, by some step at the expense of the people around him, which is probably why they dislike him so much. Now, Zacchaeus isn't just among the tax collectors. He is a chief of tax collectors. He's a regional boss. He has other tax collectors working under him in different areas giving him the funds that they collect. He is gathering those funds together and he is sending those forward to Rome and most likely gaining from the excess of all of those tax collectors who are working under him. And we come to understand that if a tax collector is aggressive enough, ruthless enough, they could gain significantly at the expense of those around them. And if they're aggressive and ruthless enough, their reputation would deteriorate in the same measure 
in the eyes of the community around them. So Zacchaeus, as a chief, would not only have his, his own reputation collecting taxes, but every tax collector who works under him, the way that they treat the people, the community would apply that reputation to Zacchaeus as those who sub- submit to him, as those who are overseen by him. And so it's now understandable to, to, to get a better picture of this crowd unwilling to let Zacchaeus through. Now, as we talked about our sermon this week, uh, Jonah Gillespie, our children's minister, mentioned that, that probably most of us need to adjust our mental image of what this scene looks like. Because of the song, because of the children's picture books, many of us, when we think about Jesus walking through Jericho and Zacchaeus unable to see over the crowd, we imagine a parade of people lining the thoroughfare on both sides as Jesus and maybe his disciples orderly walk down the middle of the street and all the people can see and they're all having a wonderful time waiting for Jesus to throw candy. And and Zacchaeus is just too short to to, to see what's happening. That's what we we do at parades, right? We love parades in Finley. We go down to Main Street, we sit on the curb, everybody can see it's a wonderful time and everybody who's walking down the street in the parade throws candy. It's It's a wonderful experience. But that's not what happened here. Imagine Jesus coming into a town like Jericho and all the people hearing about Jesus, all the things that they've known that he is capable of, all the things that he's been doing in other places. And the people come out of their houses to see what's going on and they mob Jesus. They surround him, clamoring for his attention, reaching out to touch him, hoping that that he will perform a miracle, hoping that they can beg of him to heal their loved ones. And they're all surrounding him. Have you ever been to a little kicker's soccer game, like the toddler's soccer. Have you, have you come to upward basketball here, like at the beginning of the season? You've, you've seen children learning a sport. What did they do at the, the first period of the first game? The ball comes out and all of them flock to the ball. And there's this swarm, like bees, this swarm around the ball. And they go with the ball over here and they go with the ball over there. There's no plays. They're not setting anything up. They're not spreading out. They all want to get a hold of that ball. Imagine that kind of a mob around Jesus. And Zacchaeus on the outside trying to get a, a, just a glimpse of Jesus. And the people who are, who are mobbing Jesus, trying to get closer, feel someone pushing into the side and they see it's Zacchaeus. Oh no, and they're boxing him out, keeping him away, not him. No, 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 he doesn't need to get to Jesus. I'm trying to get to Jesus. Notice in the face of all of this difficulty, Zacchaeus has this strong desire to see who Jesus is, a desire that drives him to do what other people aren't willing to do, a desire that drives him to think outside of the box. Now, he's despised by the people around him. That doesn't make him stupid. He's very intelligent. He sees this mob around Jesus. He has no way of getting through that mob. And so he looks and sees, well, they're moving in this general direction. There's a tree. I'll just go climb that tree. I'll get higher than the crowd so that I can see Jesus over their heads. And he just starts climbing this tree. Can you imagine? A grown man, a short grown man, very wealthy in his Mediterranean robes with jewelry, encrusted rings, a wealthy, I'm thinking like Danny DeVito in a robe, like climbing in a tree, just perched there waiting for Jesus to walk by. It's ridiculous to think about a grown man doing something that grown men should not do. We get to an age in life and we just understand. Tree climbing, just, it's, it's, not, it's not a part of life anymore. There are other more, more beneficial things for us to do that, that don't result in injury. So we don't do those things. Zacchaeus is willing to do these things that no one else is willing to do because he desires so much just to see who Jesus is. And he represents for us the struggle that we face when we need to see Jesus clearly. 
He represents for us the struggle that takes place when we want to help other people see Jesus clearly. And, and what is it that keeps us from seeing Jesus? It's obstacles that we can't see over, that we can't see around, that obscure our view, maybe that distort our view of Jesus, that even though we get kind of an image, it's not an accurate look. It's not a complete view of who Jesus is. In order for us to truly see Jesus, we must overcome those obstacles that are keeping us from doing that. We have to overcome them. We have to move those obstacles out of the way so that we can see Jesus clearly. Or if the obstacles don't seem to be movable, we need to move so that those obstacles are no longer standing between us and Jesus so we can see him clearly, so we can get an accurate view of who he is. Zacchaeus faced a very physical obstacle that he worked around. When we experience obstacles in our lives, they're not the physical kind of obstacles. They're personal obstacles. They're emotional obstacles. They are political, cultural obstacles that keep us from seeing Jesus accurately, that distort our view of, of who Jesus truly is. What are those things that keep us, that keep people in general from seeing Jesus for who he is? Sometimes they're the things that we believe about him, the things that we feel about Jesus that just aren't accurate. And even though they're not accurate, they're generally accepted by society. They're the things that people want to believe about Jesus. They're tempting for us to want to believe as well. Sometimes we hear and, and want to believe that Jesus is, is good, but he's not God. That he was, a, he was a rabbi. He was a teacher among the people of Israel, like any other rabbi. He did great things. He said some great things. So that doesn't, doesn't mean that he was God. It doesn't mean that everything he said was true. And people have come to believe that about him. It's tempting. There, there are some who would say that, that Jesus is, in many ways, who he said. He did die for our sins. He did come to perform miracles. And while he is a way to heaven, he's not the only way to heaven. There are many paths you could take. And people want to believe that's true. They, people are hoping that, that that is true, that people, that their friends, their loved ones who have not accepted Christ might still find another avenue Maybe we get to a place in our modern world today with this progressive kind of thinking that we're informed and enlightened in ways that other people haven't been in history. And we look back through that, that lens of, of progressive thinking to a historical figure like Jesus. And we think, well, if Jesus knew then what we know today, certainly he wouldn't have said some of the things that he said when he took a stance on marriage, when he took a stance on sexuality, when he took a stance on sin, when he took a stance on you name it. If he had known what we now know today, certainly he would have said something different than what he did. We, we, we're, we've moved beyond those archaic kinds of thoughts, haven't we? Don't you think that the stance that Jesus took was wrong? It's tempting to be swept by the kinds of things society is saying are true, but they present for us an obstacle that distorts the image of Jesus that distorts the reality of who he is and all of the things that he said. Sometimes the obstacles aren't what we think and believe about Jesus. Sometimes the obstacles are what we feel and think and believe about ourselves. And we come to a place where we're hindered from seeing Jesus as he is because of shame. Even though we know that Jesus came to die for our sins, to, to bring about grace that frees us from that sin, we can't get over the idea of the things that we've done. We, we can't get over the guilt that weighs on us because of the sin that, that was once present in our lives, because of the ways that we hurt the people that we cared about. And that weight of guilt and shame becomes an overbearing obstacle, 
standing in the way of us seeing Jesus clearly. Maybe for you, when you think about what it means to see Jesus clearly and you think, if I'm going to come into the presence of Jesus, certainly I ought to clean things up first. I ought to, I ought to make myself right so that I can come to Jesus and, and invite him and ask him to, to be my savior. Shouldn't I, shouldn't I get things right and present an ordered house for the Lord? And we think before we can come to the Lord and allow him to forgive us and clean us and to make us whole, certainly we should do that first. It doesn't even make sense. I have, to, I have to right all the wrongs. I have to overcome the addictions in my life. I have, to, I have to overcome all of the temptation to sin so that when I come to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness, those things aren't there anymore. That's exactly what he does when he forgives us. He provides an opportunity for change and provides the power by his spirit to eradicate that sin and have us leave it completely behind. It's what he does, not what we should do. Sometimes though, we, we, we have trouble overcoming that idea of what we need to be to come close to Jesus. Sometimes it's not just sin. Sometimes there's difficulty that we experience in life, hardships, circumstances that are overwhelming. And because we are so focused on, on the difficulty of life, it has become an obstacle that is hindering us from seeing Jesus for who he is and coming closer to him. Sometimes the thing that's most difficult for us to overcome is our own pride our own self-confidence. And we get to a place where we, we want to prove to Jesus that we can be good enough. I, I can do this on my own. I can, I should present myself to God. Sometimes we get to a place where, where we don't want to have to admit that we've been wrong so that we can accept an accurate view of Jesus. All the things that my parents believe, all the things that I was taught as a child in the church I grew up with, if I'm going to accept the truth about Jesus, if I'm going to see him without any distortions, I have to, I have to admit that all those things that I was taught, all those things that I have believed that, that aren't accurate, I have to admit that I was wrong for so many years believing that they were true. And that's a hard pill to swallow in order to see Jesus for who he truly is. And yet it's what has to take place in each of us to remove those obstacles, to get around those barriers so that there's nothing keeping us from him within Zacchaeus was this drive, this desire to see Jesus, that he wouldn't allow those obstacles to remain. He found a tree and climbed up in it so that he could see Jesus when he walked by. He didn't let inconvenience become the obstacle. He didn't let distractions become the obstacle keeping him from Jesus. Instead, he went out of his way to great lengths just so that he could see Jesus for who he was. In verse 5, when Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people who saw this, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be a guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. Now this, this is what Jesus came to do. And even though the crowd didn't want to believe what was happening, Jesus, earlier in the book of Luke, in chapter 5, it said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came for this very purpose, to find men like this who needed him, to call them to a place of repentance, to bring about change in their lives through his love and grace, through his presence. Imagine how displeased the crowd would have been to see Jesus reaching out to Zacchaeus of all people. 
this man that they despise, and yet he's the one that Jesus chose to interact with, chose to stay with, chose to make a personal connection with. It's the presence of Jesus that begins to do significant things in the life of Zacchaeus. And it's the presence of Jesus that helps us to see the changes that need to be made in our lives as well. It's the presence of Jesus that helps the people that we interact with see the need for changes in their lives. And that's part of what we get to to do, to, to introduce them to Jesus, to point them to him so that we can help them change by the power of Christ working in them. And here's how the the change started to take place in Zacchaeus. He felt convicted about his life, about the way that he was treating the people around him. He felt convicted about his wealth and his finances. And he said, I'm giving half of my money to the poor right now, here and now. And not only that, if I have cheated anyone, I will give them four times what I owe them. Now we hear those words and they sound insincere, don't they? Why is that? It's because we've heard so many insincere apologies from people that say, well, if I offended you, I'm sorry. That's not an apology. Of course you offended me. That's why you should be sorry. You should have said, I know that I offended you. I'm very sorry about that. Not if I offended you. And so we hear Zacchaeus say, if I cheated anybody, I'll give them four times what I owe them. Now, this isn't an insincere, uh, indefinite kind of thing. He is making a statement to the crowd. Any of you who, who want to claim that I have mistreated you, I'll give you four times what I owe you. He's not going to pursue them and just hand out money. But if they come to him, if I, have, if I have cheated any of you, let me know and I'll give you four times what I owe you. That's what Zacchaeus was saying to the crowd, offering them compensation, making amends for the wrong that he had done in their lives. Notice the power of Jesus at work in him. Not just a private change, not just an internal change. This is, this is public. This is observable behavior that Zacchaeus is changing because of the presence of Jesus, because of the power of Jesus in his life. That's what the, the presence of Jesus does for us, helping us see changes that need to be made and convicting us and motivating us to make those changes a reality. What is it about the presence of Jesus that, that helps us to change? What, what is it about coming close to him that helps us see those things and motivates us to do that? Sometimes it's simply recognizing the difference between us and him. We see his holiness. We see his character, his goodness. We see how, how perfect he is. And, and we want to live up to that standard. We want to be a reflection of his character. And so we, we are, are motivated to be more of him, to be more holy, to be more good, to be more perfect, to be a reflection of his love and grace in the world around us. And we want to live up to that standard. Sometimes it's just that the splendor of his glory that illuminates our lives, that shines into the dark places of who we are and helps us see all of those things that need to be changed. Have you ever walked into a room and thought, you know, this, this place looks pretty clean. I, I was planning on cleaning today. I don't think I have anything to do. And then you, you turn on more lights and you go, oh, wow, look at all the dust. Look at the stains. Look at all the stuff that needs to be done. That's what the presence of Jesus does for us in, in, in a place where we want to say, yeah, this is clean enough. This is good enough. I can, I can get by. He illuminates our lives and we suddenly see all the stains and the filth and the scum. And we think, oh, wow, how would I ever think that this is presentable? I've been convincing myself that it's okay. But now that I see by the light of the presence of Jesus, I see all of those things that need to be surrendered to him, that need to be cleansed by the power of the spirit working in me. In some cases, being in the presence of Jesus 
creates within us a desire to please him as our heavenly father, wanting to, to demonstrate how much we love him, wanting, wanting for him to be proud of us. And, and that's an appropriate feeling that we have with the Lord, that we would want to please him with our lives. There are other times when we've experienced his forgiveness and grace and the freedom and the peace and the joy that we have because of that causes us to want to make amends for all those things we've been forgiven of. We, we realize that we've hurt people in our lives. We realize that we've, we've said things. And, and because we've experienced this incredible forgiveness from the Lord, we then are motivated to, to seek out forgiveness from others, to, to extend apologies where they're needed, to right the wrongs that we did because of the person that we once were. And, and that's, that's a good thing for us to do as well. To, to be motivated by the presence of Jesus, to allow him to make those changes in us. And, and the presence of Jesus also helps us to overcome the image of who we once were. And that's part of that, that process of change, of believing that he is making us into what he wants us to be and that we're no longer bound by the decisions that we once made. We're no longer bound by the reputation that we had. We're no longer bound by this, the way of living that we couldn't overcome on our own. And that's a difficult process for us because it's not something that we can do on our own. It's something that we depend on him entirely to do. And what we notice is that as we allow him to make changes in our lives, sometimes it's the people around us. Sometimes it's the people closest to us who have the hardest time believing that that change is genuine and true. And they're the people who are saying, well, I hope that this is, this is sincere, but I remember the person that you were. I, I hope that what's happening in you as you are becoming a Christian, as you are experiencing forgiveness from God, I hope this is, this is going to stick because I've watched the ways that you've made commitments to other people and failed them. Notice when Zacchaeus encountered Jesus and Jesus said, come down, I'm coming to your house. What was it that the people around him said? This man's a sinner. Jesus is going to a sinner's house. They defined him by who he was. And when we allow Christ to make changes in our lives, sometimes it's the people around us who look at us and say, why, why, would, why would you want to become a Christian? Why would, you, why would you want to sacrifice all those things? Why would you, who, who always says this kind of thing, why would you want? Why, why would you, who, who always does this kind of thing, why would you want to do that? Why? why? I've known you for years. What, what is motivating this change? Why would you choose that kind of life? And when we hear people reminding us of our past, it, it produces in us this, this sense of shame. We cow to that burden of, of our former selves. And it's tempting to to allow that to diminish what Christ is doing in us instead of allowing that shame to weigh us down. What we should see in those questions is an opportunity to talk about the power of Christ at work in us, not about who we were and what we're choosing to do, but about who he is and what he's doing in our lives, about the grace that's been extended, about the changes that he is bringing about in us. This is a moment of testimony. This is a moment of witness where we can declare the power of the spirit of God working in us and changing us into something we could never accomplish on our own. 
that's the opportunity we have when people question us about our past and wonder if what we're doing is sincere. We have an opportunity to make a public change and declare the power of the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And it's an incredible moment for us to stand and declare his love and grace in the world around us. Because it's, it's Jesus who helps us see beyond who we once were. It's Jesus who motivates us to change. And it's Jesus who empowers us to follow through. In verse 9, we come back to this conversation with Jesus and, and Zacchaeus. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, those are powerful words. Today, salvation has come to this house. This man, too, is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We understand those words in the context of verse 7, with all the crowds saying, He's a sinner. Jesus said, No. He's the son of Abraham and salvation has come to his house. This isn't a clever nickname that Jesus gave to himself. Salvation's walking down the street. Salvation's coming to your house. No, Jesus is saying there's a change taking place in him and salvation has come to his house. He is a son of Abraham. He is one of you and I have come to seek and to save what was lost. I've come to seek him out because he's not where he belongs and he needs to be restored. That's the power of Jesus. That's what he's calling us to live up to, to seek and to save the lost. We do that kind of thing all the time. When we lose something that's important, we seek it out and return it to the place where it belongs. Have you ever gotten up in the morning, gotten ready, showered, eaten breakfast, got ready to walk out the door after getting dressed and gone to reach for your keys and they're not where they should be? They're lost because they aren't where they belong. Where are they? We don't just go to reach for our keys that aren't there and say, oh, well, I guess I'll walk to work today. What a wonderful day. No, we go look for the things that are lost. We turn over couch cushions. We look under the table. We sort through all the papers that are cluttered all over the stuff that shouldn't be there. And we look and look and look until we find our keys sitting on top of the microwave. Why? Because when I got home yesterday, all I wanted to do was get a snack. And I went straight to the pantry and started stuffing my face. And I left the keys right there. And you find what was lost and you restore it to the place where it should be. So that when you go to leave the house again, the keys are right where they should be and you can then go on with life. When you look around the house and you realize the dog isn't there, you open the back door to look in the yard. He's not there either. The dog is lost. You don't say, oh, well, it's good for him. He'll have an adventure. He'll come back when he's ready. No, you get in the car and you drive around until you find your dog because he's lost. He is not where he should be, and he needs to be restored to the place where he belongs. This is the mindset of Jesus, seeking out those things that aren't where they should be and restoring them where they belong, by his side, in relationship with him, when we are lost. It's because we are not with Jesus where we belong. We are instead pursuing sin, lost in our own transgressions. And where do we need to be? Back in relationship with him. And he has come to seek and save those things that are lost, those people who aren't where they belong so that he can restore them. And he's calling us to be a part of that process, to discover those people who aren't with him where they belong and to help them come back to that place, to restore them where they belong. And he is inviting us to do that with him. And what we need to be careful not to do is to be like the crowd who saw Jesus reaching into the life of Zacchaeus and said, no, 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 no. He's a sinner. 
He is the worst of sinners because he sinned against us. He took our money and he's very wealthy at our expense. He doesn't deserve. No, no, no. You shouldn't be reaching out to him. He is our enemy. He is not one of us and we don't want you to forgive him. And then we have to now treat him as a friend. We want to take revenge on him because that's what he deserves. And honestly, Jesus, I don't think he's worthy of what you have to offer. When we consider what Jesus is calling us to do, we need to be very careful not to let our perspective about other people limit the scope of our conversations with them. Not to decide for ourselves that they're unworthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not to decide for ourselves that because of what they've done to us, they don't deserve forgiveness. Not to think, well, I have seen the way they live and the way they act. I don't think they'd be interested in Jesus. Not to think, I've brought up faith in Jesus before, and it was a terrible argument. I, I don't want to go through that again. Not to think, I'm beginning a friendship with this person. I don't want to make it awkward by bringing up spiritual things. We allow so often our perspective to limit the scope of our conversations. We, we sometimes don't even begin a conversation with someone because we don't think that we have the right to talk to them. Maybe we think they're, they're better than we are because of their the way that they live, because of the job they have or the finances they have, we just don't feel like we're worthy. Or maybe we feel like they're not worthy, that we probably don't want to talk to them. Maybe we have decided for them that they're not interested in Jesus. Maybe like we talked about a couple weeks ago, we've, we've tried and tried and those conversations have degraded into an argument. And, and this is a person who, who needs us to be persistent and to be patient with them and to consistently demonstrate the love of Jesus. But because of our perspective, We've gotten to a place where we're just not willing to do that anymore. We need to be careful not to limit the scope of our conversations, but to instead pursue those people who need to be restored to Jesus, to, to initiate conversations with them, to turn those conversations toward the spiritual. Now, this is what we've been talking about for about two months. This is sermon number nine in our series. So that, that's more than two months of sermons talking about the power of conversation to help Bring people closer to Jesus. This incredible opportunity that, that we have every day in the lives of people that we encounter. The, the people that we work next to. The people that we bump into in the grocery store. The family members who are around us constantly. We have these opportunities that Jesus has placed in our lives to draw people closer to him. And the thing that we get to do is to begin making those connections. And, and for the past two months, we've been talking about those opportunities. I've been encouraging you to, to step forward confidently and trusting the, the Holy Spirit to provide the words and to, to create the right moments for you to talk about his love and grace. But I know, I know that what I'm asking you is difficult. I know that it's uncomfortable. I know that for some of you who are introverts like me, that this is an overwhelming challenge. But I want to encourage you to see how God will use you when you surrender to his calling in your life. And I want to provide you with all the tools that I can to help you make this process as easy and seamless as possible, that it will be a connection for people to very clearly see the love of Jesus in you. And so we come to the cards that are on your chairs. We asked you just to put them aside earlier in the service. Get them out now. You've got a stack of five cards rubber banded together. What I hope these will be for you First is a tool to use to talk to people and turn those conversations toward the spiritual. Sometimes we have those moments that we talked about where, where we encounter people that, that we think really would benefit from just 
experiencing what church is like. We think, well, I'd love for you to come with me to church and, and, and worship the Lord and be fed by his word to, to be introduced to a family of believers who care about you, want to support you. Sometimes it's hard to say those words out loud. This is an easy way to begin that conversation to say, hey, the front of this card has information about my church. I'd love for you to come with me. In fact, I know it, it's uncomfortable to, to come to church. I will wait in the parking lot for you. I'll meet you five minutes before one of these service times you pick, and I will walk in to the building with you and help you find a seat because I want you to experience my church so much that I want you to feel welcome. Will you meet me here? And it has our website, it has our service times, it has a phone number, everything they need to, to get more information about our church. It's a great way to start that conversation. There are other people, maybe you, you are aware that they're not quite ready to come to church. On the back of that card is the QR code for them to scan to have access to our Right Now Media account here at Parkview. Now, we have paid for access to this account and it is free for anyone who wants to use it. Anyone who comes to our church, anyone who's a friend of ours, we can give them access to Bible study videos, instructional videos that teach more about God's word, an incredible tool. And, and you can provide access to anybody. There's children's videos that are faith-based. You don't have to worry about objectionable content. It's fantastic stuff. And you can provide this to anybody you want to. You're in line at the grocery store. You start a conversation with someone and say, hey, here, this is a gift for my church. It's free streaming content for your family that is all biblical. It's all scriptural. I want you to experience it. Maybe Maybe you are having a conversation with someone who has really tough questions. And, and I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes those questions are hard to answer. Sometimes we get to what's reduced and say, I don't, I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's such a difficult question. Uh, but here's some, here's some easy information for you. I, I think there's a Bible study about that, that question. Why don't you search that on Right Now Media? Watch the videos. I'll watch the videos and we can talk next week and, and talk about what you saw and talk about what the Bible says. And maybe we can come to an answer to that question together. This is, this is an incredible opportunity for you. And I hope that one, these cards will be a tool that helps you with your conversations. Two, the purpose of this stack of five cards is to be a challenge for each of us, to distribute five. That's it, five cards. That's a doable kind of challenge, right? That, that you could have five meaningful conversations, that you could step awkwardly into the lives of other people five times and turn a conversation toward the spiritual. And I wanna challenge you to do that. If you're one of those people that's raring to go, right? And you want more than five cards, there are plenty of cards on the welcome tables. You can take a stack with you. Keep them in your back pocket. Keep them in your purse or in your wallet. Keep them readily available because when you accept the challenge, you can count on God to create the opportunities. When you surrender yourself to his calling, you can trust God to be faithful, to present you with opportunities, to be faithful to that calling. And I want to challenge you to step into those opportunities. I want to challenge you to allow God to use you to make a difference in the lives of the people around you. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the message that you bring us to your word. Thank you for challenging us with the, the, the conversation that you had with Zacchaeus so many years ago, helping us see the value of, of, of being a part of this process of change in the lives of people. God, I pray that you would convict us of the need to reach into the lives of people and draw them closer to you. God, I pray for those opportunities to come. I pray that you would show us your power in, in our lives, that you would remind us of how perfect you are by creating these perfect moments for us to talk about your love and grace in the world around us. God, we're so grateful to you. And we thank you in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.